Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm one of the senior editors of the Oxford Journal Global Summary. It's my pleasure today to introduce to you Stuart Patrick from the Council on Foreign Relations in Washington, who's visiting us to talk to the Monk School community about his new book, Sovereignty Wars, Reconciling America with the World. So I wanted to talk to Stuart today about the lessons he believes he's learned from his examination in the book of American foreign policy through the lens of sovereignty. I also wanted to talk to him about uh, the upcoming summits. Uh, Stuart wrote about them in one of his blog posts at The Internationalist on the uh, Council on Foreign Relations website. So I wanted to ask him how he thought uh, President Trump is going to react uh, to his presence at the variety of, of global summits, but in particular, the two real informals, the G7, uh, which is being hosted uh, this year by Canada and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, and the G20, uh, which is ho being hosted this year by Argentinian President Maurizio Macri. So let me uh, bring in Stuart and we can uh, dialogue around these various issues. So it's my pleasure today uh, to welcome to our plush studios at the Monk School, Stuart Patrick from CFR. Welcome, Stuart. Great to be here, Alan. Good. Uh, Stuart, uh, just before the year end, uh, on your CFR blog, you posted, Desperately Seeking Sherpas, 10 Global Summits to Watch in 2018. Um, and I wanted to examine the upcoming summits with you. But first, I wanted to get your praise, if you can, of your recent examination of American foreign policy in your new book, The Sovereignty Wars, Reconciling America with the World. Right. Uh, the book, um, The Sovereignty Wars, really looks at something that has um, puzzled me for quite some time, which is why is the United States so incredibly um, neuralgic and sensitive uh, on the topic of sovereignty? Uh, this is something that uh, the, my book um, uh, notes has been apparent and, and part of American political culture since uh, the actual founding of the United States and obviously was front and center in debates over the League of Nations a hundred years ago. But what has happened in uh, the Trump administration is that these sentiments, which have always percolated below the surface, have absolutely burst, uh, uh, burst out. And there is a huge sentiment within the administration and the president and those around him that by participating in international institutions and other frameworks, the United States is actually sacrificing its sovereignty. And the basic thesis that I'm making is that, particularly in, in an era of globalization, uh, actually joining international treaties and uh, being members of international organizations is not a sacrifice or an abridgment of American sovereignty. It's in fact, it's embodiment and expression. And I go on to say that a lot of the, the, the furor, sturm and drawing that you get in the United States about sovereignty is really uh, a result or a function of major confusion uh, over what sovereignty actually means and the fact that it actually contains several dimensions. And one of the results of this confusion is that you end up with uh, people who are polemicists like John Bolton 
uh, you know, writing about the coming war on American sovereignty, or John Fonte of the Hudson Institute writing, sovereignty or submission, will Americans rule themselves or be ruled by others? And so you can sort of short circuit more considered debates by saying, you know, uh, this is a violation of American sovereignty, and it becomes sort of uh, an attack on motherhood and apple pie. What I what I say is that sovereignty has basically three dimensions, and just very quickly think of it schematically as a triangle. And like most triangles, this triangle has three corners. And uh, one dimension of uh, of sovereignty, which I think gets a lot of the heat, is this notion of authority. That is. Is the Constitution the fundamental source of American law, or in a sense, do we bow to some superior authority? And the way I think about this, is, I'm not sure in Canada, but certainly in, in the United States, there was a very well-known hot dog company uh, called Hebrew National, right? And they had a tagline, which was, uh, you know, other companies that make hot dogs are sort of fly-by-night operations. Because since basically, since we're kosher, we have to appeal to a higher authority, right? Well, the United States politically in any terms, doesn't do higher authority, right? So we're very good at defending that. So all these objections notwithstanding, the United States really doesn't enter into supranational organizations. It's a horizontal arrangement that it enters into. What I argue in the book, though, is that the United States does face major trade-offs in an era of globalization between two other dimensions of sovereignty, which I call sovereignty as autonomy and sovereignty as influence. And basically the argument here is that there's this illusion that the United States has had for quite a long time, particularly since it's so powerful, right, that it can actually have absolute freedom of action. And the point that I make is that increasingly in a world of transnational threats, whether we're talking about pandemic disease or financial instability or transnational terrorism or proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, and of course climate change, there really is no unilateral or even bilateral way of getting your way out of this. And so we need to think more carefully, that is, we Americans, about the trade-offs between uh, the desire for independent action and the potential benefits of collective action. And basically, that's what I argue about. And, and Trump really is the apotheosis of this, this uh, view that American sovereignty is under siege. And, and, and you've seen it through, um, you know, during his campaign, when he talked about building the wall as an attribute of American sovereignty, when he talked about leaving the Paris Climate Accords, when he when he's attacked the United Nations and when he's cast uh, doubts on whether or not the United States is going to uh, continue uh, being uh, a member of the, the World Trade Organization, frankly. Well, you know, it's, a, it's kind of an odd uh, position, given that the United States, of course, and, and notwithstanding its assertions of sovereignty over the decades, certainly since the Second World War, nevertheless took the lead role in building all these institutions uh, of the of the liberal international order, the UN, uh, the GATT, which is now the World Trade Organization, the IMF, and the World Bank, what what uh, would you say the the American public is reacting to in terms of electing a president who seems to have uh, who uh, appeals to a view of American sovereignty in which it is alone and not leading in the multilateral environment. Absolutely. You know, it's, it is a, it's a fascinating question because, you know, and what I try to capture in the book, but also in, in other writings, is the fact that the United <coughs> States under Donald Trump is really uh, risking going to war with the world that America made. As you said, we have you know, as John Eikenberry, our, our friend and colleague, colleague. Uh, yeah. uh, talks about quite frequently, the United States presided over the greatest institution-building uh, effort in world history. And and the genius of uh, the United States during that time, and 
you know, obviously there were excesses and mistakes, etc. But by and large, the genius was that the United States took an interest in what the strategist Arnold Wolfers used to call milieu goals. That means you don't simply look at narrow national interests. You have an enlightened self-interest. And that means that if you're the most powerful country in the world, you want to set up the system and the shape the contours of that system in a way so that as John says, it's easy to join and mm -hmm. hard to overturn. And frankly, this this system where other uh, nation states could enjoy security, could pursue shared prosperity, and hopefully pursue uh, human freedom as well, worked remarkably well for a long time. And now you have um, a president who's been elected who takes a purely transactional approach uh, to international relations, as if in a way the United States were just like any other country. Uh, not that other countries have never invested in the system, but the, you know, it sort of ignores the the essential role of the United States as, in a sense, a global stabilizer. Now, why this happened is fascinating. Uh, I think, in part, it has to do with the satisfaction uh, of, with the unevenly shared gains of globalization. On the economic side, I think you could make the argument that what happened uh, starting in the 1980s was, in a sense, that with uh, in the aftermath of the breakdown of the Bretton Woods system, that, in a sense, you know, finance was totally globalized and set free, and uh, and also at the same time you had uh, weakening of labor unions and 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 labor in general, and so capital has gained at the expense of workers. Now, one can take that agreement that that argument too far. There are a lot of other things that have made certain sectors uh, really be decimated, and some of those have to do with automation and actually technological advance. But be that as it may, I think a number of people, having listened for you know decades to their politicians, Republican and Democratic in the United mm -hmm. States, say, hey, we'll help you guys out with trade adjustment assistance, or you know, we'll help with worker retraining. And the reality is that that is just in such incredibly small potatoes in terms of the U.S. budget. And I think that, um, that those, co those costs are quite concentrated, and I think uh, you saw this on the Democratic side, obviously, in the 2016 election, where you know there were cer a certain number of the messages that Bernie Sanders was saying about how the system is rigged um, were ones that obviously Donald Trump was saying too. Now, as a plutocrat who has never really had any apparent interest in the common man, I'm not sure that Donald Trump is necessarily the vehicle, the proper vehicle to bring this uh, forward. But I think that. Um, uh, you know, he, he definitely has tapped into that sentiment. I should also mention that this sentiment uh, and this sort of America first sentiment is one that is, a, is in a sense a back to the future moment for the United States. Uh, because not only is Donald Trump making war in a sense with the world that America created or helped create, He's also bringing the United States back to, in a sense, almost an interwar ethos. Um, mm -hmm. uh, one in which, the, before the United States sort of adopted the mantle of globalism, uh, it was had a much more transactional approach. It obviously, obviously decided not to accept uh, global leadership during the interwar period as, as Britain was faltering. And, um, and I think that, you know, there, there are other people who've written, like Walter Russell Mead, about a Jacksonian tradition in American mm -hmm. politics that's more insular, that's more nationalist. And I think it's always been a part of the American political spectrum. And But what, what Donald Trump has done is taken that view and then the, the alienation or dissatisfaction with globalization and has turned it into a, a political movement, or at least harnessed it. Well, he harnessed it certainly enough to uh, win the election in 2016. Although, as we know, he lost the popular vote significantly. Indeed, indeed. and that's why, that's why I think that one can't overdo 
the degree to which this is a huge transition. We can talk later about whether or not this is likely to be lasting. But but I think that in general, um, you know, it was such a razor thin mm. uh, uh, majority of the electoral college or uh, votes that accounted for his majority in the electoral college, and and of course his performance uh, since has led to a certain <coughs> disillusioning of people who are probably swing voters in that election. How much do you think it might relate to, um, for lack of a better term, exhaustion of, of segments of the American public with respect to the question of America's uh, military activity overseas, that is Iraq under George W. Bush, Afghanistan, uh, you know, a, a continuous military effort um, you know, kind of on again, off again with Syria, but but the notion of the American uh, pub, or at least good segments of the American public, that they're just tired. Yeah, I think that there were, you know, there there have been ex- excesses both under Republican and Democratic administrations and you know, the last two administrations for sure. And I think that there was, there is a sense of that. You see this in terms of of you know democracy promotion <clears throat> and human rights promotion. Right. Which is very interesting has been virtually the administration has been virtually silent on it, and there's been less pushback on that. Um, at least so far. I think ultimately uh, another administration will have to get back at least to some degree of democracy promotion or, 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 or at least championing of human rights. But I think part of the reason for that is that there's an exhaustion and there's an equation in the mind of many people, in the, uh, many uh, in the American public of what the hell are we doing in these endless adventures in distant conflicts? And I think you know there there's a reaction to the over-militarization of, of U.S. foreign policy and uh, and to you know, the hubris of nation building, which we've never been particularly good at. I'm not sure anybody's really good at it. Mm-hmm. And so people are exhausted. And there's a desire, in a sense, if not to return to isolationism, then to at least have a more modest foreign policy. Now, ironically, of course, by underfunding diplomacy and development efforts, and while calling for major ratcheting up of, of uh, defense uh, spending around the world, I actually think that um, that 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 the actual policies that or the and, and the budgetary requests that Donald Trump is making are uh, really going to risk further militarizing U.S. foreign policy. Well, and indeed, if you saw the budget passage just uh, in the last 24 hours here, um, uh, you find, of course, that the amount that they've committed to military spending is, in fact, larger than what Trump had requested. So it's a major boost in military yeah, and spending. In, indeed. Indeed. Uh, the only silver lining is that some of the presumed or some of the cuts that the administration proposed, which were extraordinarily draconian in, in what appears to be a, uh, uh, an unending effort to uh, weaken um, U.S. diplomacy and, and, frankly, a jewel of the United States, which is the U.S. Foreign Service um, and the U.S. diplomatic capability, that has been at least somewhat held in abeyance by people on Capitol Hill who believe that those are important instruments of American power. So you you point out in the going back to the book <clears throat> that uh, in fact in, in reaction to some of the issues uh, globalization militarization so forth um, uh, that the United States began to uh, kind of promote a what you, what your colleague Richard Hawes called a la carte uh, multilateralism a messier form of multi multilateralism. So the emergence, uh, actually much earlier, but then more formatively, in the 21st century of this kind of GX world, these informal 
uh, institutions or institutions like the Nuclear Security Summit, which had a uh, President Obama had promoted and which had a very functional approach, concern with uh, proliferation and so forth. Um, and you write, at first blush, a world a la carte option seems tailor-made for the United States, allowing it to maximize its sovereignty, freedom of action, and domestic policy autonomy by picking and choosing among uh, diverse international institutions. So is, it, you know, is this GX system really much more compatible with the new form of leadership in terms of the United States? Yeah, you know, it's um, it's. I think it is uh, very tempting uh, for for the United States to go down this road. And uh, with all, I want to give you recognition for actually coming up with the uh, the concept of uh, the GX world. Because I think it's um, and here when one talks about the GX world, as uh, I'm sure other uh, if you. Uh, Past listeners of this podcast will recognize we're talking about the fact that, um, as the British say, you have different horses for you have different horses for different courses. In the sense that um, the the high table, who's who's actually at the table, um, the number of those countries, in other words, the X in the equation, uh, will vary uh, according to uh, whether or not they're interested in the topic, whether or not they have capability, and also also often whether or not they're like-minded. And the idea here is that. Um, you have um, shifting coalitions and shifting uh, invitations going out to different groups. And my thought has been that, that this is an, uh, one of the most interesting um, uh, elements of and, and uh, innovations in multilateralism. In fact, I wrote about it in uh, your journal Global Summetry uh, called in, a, in a piece called The New New Multilateralism. Um, you know, the advantage of it, basically looking at the advantages of minilateral coalitions, uh, but at what cost was, was the question. And you know I, there are obviously significant advantages. Um, obviously, you get um, flexibility and dispatch if you you can create one of these things very quickly for and perhaps for time limited purposes like the nuclear security summits, where which were you know biennial events that uh, Obama um, came up with to try to lock down the world's uh, nuclear. Um, uh, materials and, uh, and and nuclear weapons so that they couldn't be stolen or diverted. Um, there's an ever you can also use it in you can also have a, adopt sort of a modular approach as well. You, you don't have to go after an entire. Uh, you, this wasn't a solution to the entirety of the proliferation problem, but it was a it was a solution to a part of it, and it was also vol relatively voluntary, right? Each of the countries showed up with what they called gift baskets, right? It's a very similar to the Paris Climate Accord in in in, in, a, in a similar way, and that's you. Everybody came up with, hey, here's our piece of what we're going to do about it. Um, and again, you you can also have certain levels of discrimination, right? So on certain issues particularly amongst like-minded countries, you might want to go, if you're the United States, you might want to go with the G7, whereas uh, on, on other things, but also in, including issues that might require the presence of the Chinese or the Russians, you might you might uh, uh, go with them. So I think there are a lot of advantages. There are, though, a number of trade-offs. Um, well, I should say this, though. In terms of the the advantage, it also has specific advantages with respect to the sovereignty triangle that I described. Because the great thing about the informals is that it has no bearing at all on sovereignty as autonomy that is the sort of the top corner of that triangle it it preserves significant amounts of autonomy or freedom of action you know think of it as the bottom left of that triangle mm -hmm. and yet it gives you the promise potentially of influence of sovereignty as influence which is the so it's this the trifecta right in, in theory now it's not all that positive a story or it's not a completely positive story because the, the argument that I make is that is that there are major um, risks of 
or there are risks of simply bypassing um, formal international institutions that are grounded in international law, and that also tend to be universal in terms of their membership. So you get a lot of pushback from countries, you know, about the G20, for instance. They say, hey, you know, what about the G173? And how, how do we, you know, which is basically the, the rest of the members of the United Nations system. It's not grounded in law. Uh, it's and also it sort of sometimes bypasses the uh, the standing capabilities, much less le legitimacy of of, uh, of organizations. I think it works better if you think about these things not as oppositional, but in a sense complementary. So there are certain things that could be launched within a framework like the Nuclear Security Summit that then could be then integrated later on conceivably into the International uh, Atomic Energy Agency, or that could be integrated into something that uh, you know the the, the every five-year review conference on the uh, Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty does. The final thing that I'll have to say that, that is uh, something that, and I said at first glance, this is tailor-made for the United States. What the United States is discovering, of course, is that it's not the only country that can play this game, right? So the Chinese and the Russians will have their Shanghai Cooperation Organization, or the, the Chinese will sponsor the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, or pursue uh, more limited uh, frameworks of their own. So. Um, you know, in general, letting uh, letting these flowers bloom is a is a good thing. I think uh, it can get away from some of these hidebound institutions, but it's not a panacea. And when you say it's not a panacea, I wanted to explore that a little bit because, you know, you 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 do uh, uh, suggest in your book uh, the you know, the importance and the value for the United States with respect to sovereignty, but I suspect also with respect to leadership. Uh, of the what I call the rise of the informals, right? Uh, G7, G20, and all the rest of these informals. You, you know, uh, ex accept that. You talk about uh, the minilateralism, but you raise questions about it. Um, uh, and, you know, you do kind of uh, shift a little bit back to promotion of the formal organizations. UN and um, uh, WTO or IMF, all those institutions. But I wanted to wanted to raise that question as between the formal and informal, suggesting in fact it really relates to not to the legal questions or the secretariat, but to the commitment of those uh, countries, those states, which are prepared to move forward on an issue, uh, because you know in effect, I mean, you look at the I look at the Iran issue, and the Iran issue was in under the auspices of the United Nations. Uh, so you had the P6, uh, and uh, they, you know, they uh, concluded this agreement uh, uh, with Iran. Uh, so at least nominally, it was under the formal umbrella. Uh, and yet, here's uh, currently uh, the American president, unwilling to certify. Um, and, and in effect, at least appears to be uh, seeking to exit from it, notwithstanding that the others aren't. So formal informal doesn't seem to be to, to really be all that different in the circumstance. Yeah, you raise a good point. And, um, and I have uh, it been nothing if not inconsistent on uh, the degree to which I, uh, which has occasionally been pointed out to me by my colleagues, uh, on, on where I come down on, on the informals. Moving to your point on, um, on does it really matter in a sense if they're formal or informal if you've got a president like Donald Trump. I think that, I think that um, you know, it is obviously easier to walk away from a purely informal arrangement. Um, 
and it's also easier to walk away from a, a, a binding arrangement which is not a treaty. Uh, or like an arrangement, the, the Paris Agreement, for instance, is about the sort of most informal binding arrangement you could sort of come up with, because it is an agreement mm -hmm. amongst nations, but uh, it's, it didn't have the force of a treaty. So I, I think the problem with when you walk away from binding arrangements, you have uh, you undermine, or those that are endorsed by the passage of a Security Council resolution, for instance, I think it undermines the credibility of U.S. good faith. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, it raises this question of, wow, if we reach an agreement with the United States, that's only as good as the next presidential election, mm -hmm. right? Or maybe the overturning of, uh, of control of, of, of Congress. You know, it's, it's obviously harder uh, to get out of a, a, a formal agreement, but it's not obviously not impossible. Um, I, I do think it is hard, you know, if NATO were not a formal alliance, if the WTO were not a formal legally <clears throat> binding organization, if NAFTA were not a formal treaty, if the, if the UN were not obviously the foundation, in a sense, from its charter of the international legal system, it's quite possible, actually, that you would have more indications the United States was moving it away from it under, under President Trump. I think that, you know, you've created constituencies within the United States, you've created certainty, and also, uh, I think, among legislators, a real sense that, wow, if we pull away from, say, pull out of the WTO, and again, the signals are not good. Um, uh, in in the sense of the Trump administration's, you know, not you know opposing the appointment of new judges to the appellate body, uh, <clears throat> suggestions that if you know, the appellate body rules against the United States, we'll simply ignore it, uh, which really is a, a would be a real shot at, at and a blow at really the judicial function of the WTO, which has been its most effective function yep. in recent years. Obviously, not the legislative function. So, it, but it's it's not, but it's still not impossible, as you point out. Uh, absolutely. Well, it's interesting, of course, and the WTO is a good instance, and notwithstanding the current administration's putting uh, sand in the in the wheel with respect to the AB, the appellate body, if you uh, look at, I was reading uh, Stephen Roach recently from Yale, and he pointed out that of the 300 and some odd cases that have come to the WTO, uh, over 150 of them have been commenced by the United States, and a good number of those have been upheld, actually, by the United States. And moreover, I mean, yes, the United States could ignore a decision of the WTO, but that's not how the system works, because the other country or countries could impose the penalties. Exactly. They would be sanctioned under the WTO. It doesn't matter whether the United States says we're not right, adhering exactly. to the agreement because it's not required to. Right, exactly. I mean, I think that the problem with um, this approach of the administration um, and some sovereigntists' approach to um, mm -hmm. institutions like the World Trade Organization is simply not looking at the bigger picture in terms of how frequently the United States wins in these bodies and 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 how important it is to to ensure or to at least try to create a level playing field with countries that may not be playing uh, playing according to the rules. So I I think that um, 
this gets back to the transactional approach that, um, that the president has adopted, which rather than sort of investing in the system and agreeing to play by the rules, he's taken an approach which probably works really well in New York real estate as long as you have other buyers and sellers, right? Mm -hmm. You can't afford to screw over the other guy, right? You just, because you're going to get another buyer or seller. The problem is that world politics is an iterated game, in, to use the language of game theory. You are still conducting diplomacy with these very same, same countries yeah. over and over again. And so you can't simply, if you want to have any rule-bound um, thing, you can't simply take your marbles and go home. It's it's just not the way you actually have a rule-bound system. Well, I mean, it, it, it leads to the kind of, um, kind of ultimate question here, at least with respect to current diplomacy. Uh, in, in, you've got this tension now, uh, sovereignty and, and Donald Trump's uh, view of America first and that's with respect to trade, with respect to security, apparently, and, and yet um, uh, this notion of collective activity. And so I guess I'm raising the question, so what do America's allies, um, and maybe we'll leave the second part of this, what do America's adversaries take as American foreign policy under the Trump administration now? Yeah, I, I think that... Um uh, with respect to the allies, I think there's there's been a huge amount of uncertainty and turbulence uh, in a few very telling statements. Um, <coughs> one uh, by Angela Merkel, I think, uh, yeah. quite telling after after the, the NATO and G7 summits last year, which was basically, as I've learned over the past few days, uh, we we may no longer be able to, in a sense, she's saying we no may longer be able to count on the United States as we have in the past, and there's a sense in which. Um, you know, there there needs to be, if not a strategic overhaul, at least that needs to be factored into calculations. And what's what's happened, I think, is the United States, think of the United States as an insurance agency, right? It's basically been providing um, uh, coverage for, uh, and, and, it, and, and yet suddenly, particularly with, with respect to NATO, for instance, with all this sort of money, mm -hmm. money grubbing, sort of turning the idea that NATO is somehow a protection racket that the United States, uh, you know, needs uh, needs to get paid for. That that is it's basically as if the allies have been under this um, under this insurance policy, and then suddenly their premiums are going up, or they, they it, it's discovered they have pre-existing conditions that aren't going to be covered. Right? Well, what do you do? Right? You probably take out insurance in other ways. You start, in a sense, hedging, mm -hmm. and I think that you're beginning to see, in of modest ways, uh, some hedging going on. Now, some of this hedging is not all bad. You know, this next year, it's projected that the West Europeans will increase their defense spending by something like 4.3%. Now, burden-sharing issues have always been at the heart of the NATO alliance, the Western alliance, since the get-go. Uh, but on the other hand, there's also movements on the part of uh, the European Union. There's a lot of discussion more about strategic autonomy and creating EU capabilities, frankly, that are independent of those within NATO. So there's a little bit of a be care what you wish for thing uh, going on here. That might be valuable uh, in the long run. It might be the natural thing, uh, as long as we r remain sort of allies, a European pillar and then a North American pillar. But uh, but it does um, raise possibilities that, you know, that what, what's been so great about NATO and, a lot, and, and so useful for the United States is that it sort of kept, you know, European allies, in a sense, in one corral, mm -hmm. now a, a, uh, a consensual corral, if you will, but it's, it's made um, defense planning and policy uh, easier for the United States, even if we have borne a disproportionate burden of, of the, the collective defense. You know, in, in Asia, Pacific, I think there's a, well, and I should also say, just sticking with Europe, the, the incredibly puzzling 
uh, that the, the president um, refuses to acknowledge um, the massive interference by the Russians on the U.S. election at a time when the Russians are obviously doing this in elections in Europe is increase is incredibly uh, unsettling and also at odds with the national security strategies explicit mention of Russia as well as China as U.S. strategic adversaries moving to Asia I think you know there it's a complicated picture I think on one hand, on the one hand, some hard line on North Korea is mm-hmm. is somewhat welcomed by uh, Japan and and South Korea, and yet the recklessness and, uh, and the unpredictability of uh, the president's tweets and the the, the suggestion uh, and a debate that's clearly going on with the administration about attempting to give a bloody nose to uh, Kim Jong Un, you know, uh, an extraordinarily dangerous proposition um, that could lead to the deaths of hundreds of thousands, even if this remains. A, um, a conventional struggle, which is uh, up in the air. So, you know, again, some positive developments in the sense that you know the Japanese are also increasing their their defense spending, etc., mm-hmm. and and they're collaborating more with the Australians. And there's a sense of well, we're not sure about the Americans, but we need to hedge our bets a little bit. The Australians, meanwhile, are having a debate um, between um, what my my uh, friend and colleague uh, Michael Fullylove, the director of the Lowy Institute, calls. Well, what are we supposed to do between a reckless China and a feckless United States? And so, you know, there I think there there's just there's a a desire for stability, a desire mm-hmm. for reassurance here. With respect to China, um, again, uh, my sense is that as with Russia, I think that both countries have taken their measure of Donald Trump, and I believe that they think he's uh, a paper tiger. Uh, I believe that. Um, the Chinese believe that the trend is their friend, I think, largely. I think they probably feel like they had a huge windfall when the United States uh, pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership because, of course, that had geopolitical as well as mm-hmm. just uh, uh, economic benefits for the United States. Uh, and uh, I think that that was a real signal that maybe the pivot, which was maybe going to be ongoing uh, under, the, under the Trump administration, too, might not be ongoing. So let's... Um uh, yeah, you know, I, the obvious uh, last question on this, particularly with respect to the Asia Pacific, if uh, you know hedging is kind of the stra- uh, ultimately encouraged by some elements of the America First policy, and notwithstanding U.S. Um, um, hard, the U.S. hard line on Korea, which is masked a little bit because of the Olympics. We may well go back to indeed, it. Indeed. Uh, isn't the obvious hedging strategy for Japan and even Korea then, if they, you know, concern and trust around uh, uh, the American president, is to move towards nuclearization for themselves? I think this is one of the most um, dangerous aspects of um, calling into question or casting doubts on um, commitments to allies. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that. Uh, one of the things that obviously has rest- I, I think let me put it this way I believe that a slightly more restrained United States and um, and perhaps a United States that moves more towards a little bit of an offshore offshore balancer versus onshore organizer of uh, of uh, regional security in uh, in Asia and Europe might have some um, might have some ration- some rationale and be popular amongst the American people the, the one thing you want to avoid is to uh, cast doubts on U.S. defense guarantees to those countries, and in particular cast doubts on the U.S. nuclear umbrella, because um, right now there are nine uh, nuclear weapon states, and uh, you know if 
were there to be a nuclear cascade in East Asia in terms of other countries adopting nuclear weapons, much less uh, if in response to Iran, uh, other countries did in, in the Persian Gulf, we would be living in a much more dangerous world than even the dangerous world we're living in. <laughs> well, with that, let's turn, <laughs> let's okay. turn, let's turn to something happier. A little bit happier, <laughs> which is looking at the summits. Uh, you know, in that blog post, you said, well, look, here's all these series of summits coming up this year, 2018, uh, written obviously towards the end of 2017. You mentioned the G7 summit in Canada, the G20 summit in Argentina, the kind of post-Paris uh, meeting, COP24 in Poland, um, the NATO summit, uh, you talked briefly about NATO today, um, and uh, the summit of the Americas in Peru, and that's an interesting one because it only occurs every three years uh, that they meet. It, it also could be a tricky one, uh, particularly for the president, if, uh, if the president decides to go because, um, and that's unclear, but uh, but my, my, my guess is that he will. But, but the topic, of course, is, um, is anti-corruption, uh, which will be uh, could depending on, on, on the, uh, uh, the, the outcome or, uh, or ongoing findings of uh, uh, current investigations in Washington could be a, a, something <laughs> of a delicate one for, uh, for, for the president. But, you know, it's going to be taking place in Peru, which has had its own um, mm. recent uh, turmoil and crisis, although the president uh, seems to be uh, holding on there. And um, Brazil and as well. Yeah, Brazil, exactly. Mm. No, there are, it is well, it's a, certainly a timely uh, summit in terms of, its, uh, of the topic, <laughs> in terms of the subject matter. And, but it'll be interesting. I mean, you know, the, uh, Donald Trump is not popular in Latin America by no. and large, no. uh, and uh, not least for the uh, for the stance on immigration, um, mm-hmm. but also uh, the, the the hard line on Cuba, which is again that that was actually one of the the, the triumphs uh, within the hemisphere in terms of support for the United States was. Um, the president's President Obama's, uh, you know, the beginning of normalization, and the reverse on that on the part of uh, Donald Trump is uh, not uh, has not been uh, well received. And you know, again, Venezuela and what to do about Venezuela will also be, I think, probably a lightning rod during that summer. All right. So the implication, though, from your discussion here is that uh, you're, you you suggest that Trump will attend some or most of yeah. these summits. Yeah, um, although I, my guess is that the one he will not attend, um, I would um, I would be shocked if he would attend is is the is the COP twenty four in Poland. In Poland, uh, unless there is some major um, reversal of, um, of I mean, obviously the United States remains a, a member of the Conference of Parties to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. Right. But the fact that we have pulled out uh, from that agreement and that last year in Bonn uh, the. United States was a no-show, and uh, and its pla- and its pavilion, paid for with private dollars, was featured people like you know former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg and uh, former uh, California Governor uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger and uh, and a lot of others. Um, and in fact, as far as the United States is concerned, the the biggest climate event may take place in in September under Jerry Brown, California Governor Jerry Brown's auspices at the uh, a, a World Climate Summit uh, in September. Well, so I, you know, the, I guess the, the it raises the question. Okay, so with the exception potentially of COP twenty four, Trump is likely to uh, appear. The question is, you know, and then we, we saw it uh, last year with respect to the um, uh, G seven summit and with respect to the 
um, the NATO summit, there was an awful lot of hectoring by the, the American president. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and, and not a whole lot of cooperation or collaboration displayed, at least, at the meeting. So is that what we're likely to see in this upcoming year of summits? I think the president will be under a certain amount of pressure when it comes to NATO to uh, I think he will try to treat it actually as a victory lap in some ways, in the sense that he will say, "Look, uh, you know, the money's beginning to pour in, or whatever he's been saying, you know." And and and, and he can point to increases in uh, Western in Western European or European defense spending uh, in general. I think that um, I would doubt that he would make uh, much of a um, statement about uh, sort of Russian interference, but I think that. You know, he'll continue, I think, as he did very belatedly to do say something again to reinforce uh, the fact that um, that Article Five commitment is something that the United States believes in. And um, you mean the collective security, the collective security right? Exactly, arrangement. Right, arrangement. Exactly. Yeah. That uh, that in attack, in, in effect, an attack on one is an attack on all. Um, but I don't. I I think it will. We we should be modest about seeing things. Um, uh, we about about what we expect of those outcomes with respect to the um, respect to the um, G seven summit. You know the the agenda there in, includes some things that uh, could be popular for Donald Trump. You know, obviously, a big theme of the State of the Union address was infrastructure spending, right? And infrastructure obviously is a big is a big uh, part of that uh, G seven summit um, that's uh, coming up um, uh, not far from here um, in Quebec, and um, then also. Um, but I, I would not expect to see uh, any statements on uh, climate and probably not on trade that are particularly um, – uh, I, I think it will – let me put it this way. I think it will, it will reinforce the image that one got last year of a six plus one okay. uh, amongst – because it, and that in, in a sense is – the way things are going, where you have the EU, uh, you know, negotiating this trade agreement with uh, with Japan, and uh, obviously the Canada and uh, and the EU also have uh, have have been moving forward. There's the uh, the uh, the now uh, comprehensive progressive TPP eleven are moving forward. I don't I don't see, uh, despite Donald Trump's sort of hint or tease at Davos that maybe he'd be willing to go back into TPP. I, it, it's it's really hard to imagine any of his trade partners actually uh, taking him seriously in that in that regard. So I think you know a triumph for uh, for um, Justin Trudeau would be to have Donald Trump not create a scene <laughs> during 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 the uh, during the, the Quebec G seven summit. Is that you know, that's a pretty minimal? <laughs> that's right. It's, it's uh, minimal, minimal a statement bar. now, <clears throat> and yet and yet still a relatively high bar. <laughs> uh, the, <clears throat> with respect to the G twenty, of course, it's in Argentina Indeed. this year at the end of the at the end of the year. Um, I, I've just come back from Argentina as they begin to organize themselves, and it's it's evident that the Argentinians are hoping, you know, kind of to really show themselves as to be part of the global system after very difficult economic circumstances to be out there. One of the major subjects is the future of work uh, that they've talked about, part of a digital, part of a more, more general, uh, you know, employment and so forth and economic growth. I mean, um, I presume, but you can correct me, that on those kinds of things, uh, Trump is not likely to be uh, particularly negative or yeah I don't think so I think that um and, and actually on the on the future of work you, you know this is the the strange thing is that given the to the degree he had a mandate 
given the mandate he was uh, elected on, mm-hmm. you know, the future of work is at the core of should be at the core of his administration's um, policies. It should be because he he after all repeatedly refers to the forgotten man, and um, that that whole that phrase is sort of redolent of people who got left behind as mm-hmm. they did in the Great Depression and and also in the Great Recession and have not been able to um, to to find the sort of rewarding employment for whatever reasons, whether education or just you know happenstance of, of, of the, the increase in automation or perhaps in some cases increase in foreign competition. So, if the president is the president should have a competitiveness agenda, and it and part of that has to be uh, domestic workforce, mm-hmm. um, you know, training and uh, and providing hope for some of his base because otherwise, in a sense, he's not. You know, he, he will not have anything to show to deliver to them. So you would think that, from a strictly political calculus, that the president would want to show up and embrace this. Uh, what what you have instead, actually, is something really remarkable: a Argentina, which for years, decades, has been you know in the thrall of Peronism, which of course will never die, just like Gaulism will never die in France. But but in the thrall of you know a, a legacy of. Uh, protectionism and import substitution and sort of anti-globalization is now under Macri has become, mm-hmm. you know, one of um, the poster children for for globalization. Mm-hmm. And um, and yet you've, it, it, the irony is that the United States, at least under Donald Trump, has really moved in, in the opposite direction. So I think that'll be interesting. I also think it'll be interesting to see what what his what Donald Trump's rapport with Vladimir Putin is, because of course, as you remember in their in their last their last G twenty uh, meeting, they they had quite a long sidebar, which uh, which raised a few eyebrows. Right, particularly without uh, translators uh, present, so Indeed. we'll never know quite what was said there. But I guess then um, clearly the opportunity, but what appears to be this significant tension um, um, under this administration with this president around this America first, which really focuses much more on U.S. Uh, alone, uh, which obviously within the context of the summits is a, a, a raises difficulties, um, and maybe he can be more benign, but maybe the benign just means silent, uh, as opposed to you know really negative. But I guess it raises that big question, the America first strategy. I mean, you know, can the liberal order, the liberal order that we've seen for 70 years, uh, developed in, in many of its aspects by the United States, U.S. leadership, the formal organizations, the you know the rise of the informals. I mean, the America, uh, the United States has been at the heart of the development of the liberal international order. Can that liberal international order survive uh, four years, let alone eight years, of this president? And if so, how does it do that? Yeah, you know, I don't really know. I, I my suspicion is that it will survive. It will be um, definitely weaker, and it will be under strain. Uh, the, as as we've said, the the president has, in a sense, in declared war, in a sense, on the world America made, or turned his back, I would say, on the, on the world America made. But whether or not this is an interregnum, you know, we look back on this and think, wow, that was a crazy episode. You know, it's sort of like, you know, that was a that was a crazy weekend, right? <laughs> but this, but it's a long time, and will we be look back on this and think, wow, this was a parenthesis behind, sort of getting back, in a sense, to. 
uh, more of an internationalist, internationally inclined United States. It, it bears greater resemblance to something that we would have seen under George H.W. Bush under as a Republican, or even George W. Bush in some ways on, as a Republican, uh, notwithstanding some some unilateral inclinations that that administration had. By and large, it still believed in. Um, multilateral co- cooperation of mm-hmm. a form and it also believed that there was an opportunity to try to socialize um, a, at which the term of art uh, socialize emerging powers to actually have a stake if they give them some some voice and weight in, in these international institutions adapt those institutions as long as they began to pull their own weight now as we know the the liberal world order was under strain even before Donald Trump showed up um, with the questions of, of whether or not emerging powers obviously have the same stake, you know, does China do China and Russia, for instance, uh, or India or Brazil, do they have the same ideas uh, and visions about what the regnant norms should be? I think I still think that there is a good chance that uh, the liberal order uh, will survive, but a lot of it now depends less on not or not only on whether or not. Um, uh, China and Russia are can be convinced not to be too revisionist and to to violate too many of the norms that are out there. But more importantly, now the greatest sort of threat or vulnerability comes from within the order, uh, with the rise of nationalist populism, not only in the United States but but in some European countries. Uh, I think you know really depend on the evolution of the Democratic Party as well as the Republican Party in the United States. Right now, there's a question: Is the rep- future of the Republican Party? Is it Donald Trump's party? It is now. But will it be in perpetuity? Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that has depends on sort of his his political fortunes. Obviously, if he were to be reelected, he would begin to cement that. If he were to be impeached, which is the other alternative, right? Then then uh, then much of his agenda will end up being discredited, and it could be seen as sort of the last gasp of of uh, uh, constituencies that really were trying to fight against aspects of globalization, from economic competition to to large scale migration. Uh, but the Democratic Party also has significant divisions within mm-hmm. it. I mean, you, you know, the fact that uh, Bernie Sanders came within a hair's breadth, well, came close anyway, shall I say, to capturing the um, the Democratic nomination suggests a real uh, divide between, you know, a foreign policy establishment, frankly, and, and a Washington establishment on both parties that has probably been largely beneficiaries of globalization and an increasing skepticism, or at least a desire to recast or reframe globalization to be more broadly shared, so those benefits are more broadly shared. Hopefully, you know, I could see a new administration that embraces the Western liberal order, but then also realizes that it needs to have, you know, more of a human face. All right. Let me, one last question then. I mean, you've talked about you know the potential for revisionism on the part of uh, Russia and 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 China, but it seems to me you've got the revisionism in the wrong direction because the revisionist power at the moment is the United States. I mean, if you look at China and Xi Jinping, what everyone says about you know the China Dream and all that nationalism, nevertheless he goes to Davos right. and talks about. You know, collaboration. He talks about open markets and and so forth. That doesn't look to me like it's challenging uh, the liberal international order in that in, in those yeah. dimensions. So, the real uh, seeming um, uh, question is the revisionism of the United States. Right. I guess when I think of the liberal international order and what the United States has championed, I think of it in terms of. 
um, of the championing of an open world. Okay. And the open world includes an open international political economy, but it also includes open societies as well. And so part sure. of it, part of part of the issue here is. And I, I'm not sure, interestingly, that Donald Trump is particularly preoccupied with either of those goals right now, because um, and, and partly his cozying up to strongmen of, of, of large variety and his lack of attention to things like democracy and, and human rights uh, suggests that his interest in open societies is relatively marginal, including in the United States, conceivably. Right. But um, but my my thought about I, you're absolutely right. You know, Xi Jinping has positioned himself as the champion of, in a sense, as Davos man, right? The champion of this global order. And why shouldn't he? Of course, because China's done extremely well uh, with respect to just an extraordinary, you know, the, the historic declines in poverty and and mm -hmm. you know making China, you know, one of one of the two greatest global powerhouses right now. Um, I think that though that there are other aspects of. Uh, revisionism. When you look at other norms of the international system, um, in, in, including uh, you know territorial uh, claims, etc., that uh, that are more challenging and more revisionist. I do think that most of the pol global polit global economic rules are ones that uh, that many of the existing ones are, are ones that China can live with. But you know, when you think about the the sort of higher standard trade rules that we would like to get to mm -hmm. uh, in terms of intellectual property <clears throat> rights and and uh, and you know issues of local content and public procurement and things like that and, and investment uh, and free exchange of currencies, etc. I think there obviously um, the Chinese have uh, still a significant way to go. I think that um, you know ultimately the the idea would be to have a United States that's actually back to the multilateral bargaining table on a lot of those issues, and right now it simply is not there. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, <coughs> so, you know, you have, you know, it's a real test for the international system now. You know, people have said, well, if it's a multipolar system, sometimes that could work more smoothly. Other people have said, no, it has to be a hegemonic, you know, in, a single right. leader. Right now, <coughs> we have an, a vacuum of global leadership. leadership. Okay. And uh, and there needs to be some uh, some. Uh, Resurgence of an idea of global leadership that is one that has not just international um, acceptance or at least um, uh, recognition on the, on the U.S. leadership, but it also has to have its domestic political base has to be um, has to be um, reinvigorated. Otherwise, um, without you know politics beginning at home, otherwise it's not it's it, it's not going to not going to happen. All right. Well, Stuart, I really want to thank you for uh, spending this time with us in our plush studio. It's it's, it's, it's really remarkable what you've done with this place, uh, Alan. <laughs> thank you very much, and uh, look forward to speaking with you again in the not-too-distant future. Thanks. Thanks.